So it's been what, like two months since we did the last podcast? <laughs> Was it? Is it? Has it literally been two months since we did? I don't. I don't remember. Yamhill. Right. right. Uh, so I know that. Yeah, this book took less time to read than I thought it would. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I mean, I, I read, um, I was kind of picking away at it for a while until I got like about a third of the way into the book. And then I read the whole thing in like one sitting, I guess. I'll, I'll definitely say that the last quarter is the most interesting. Once she starts working on the army base, I was like totally hooked. Probably because that was a part of her life I knew nothing about. And... And then, but like everything, I like the first half of this book is just like, what's it like to be a woman in college in the 1930s? Turns out, not great. <laughs> well, um, hi, listeners. It's been a long time. <laughs> uh, so we should probably reintroduce ourselves. Uh, yep. I'm John. I'm Phil. And this is ClickaCast, a Beverly Cleary podcast. <laughs> So John, oh, yes? John, yes. I have a qu- I have to say that this is this could very well be our last episode. Yes, probably. And not to get too like sentimental, but I have to say that I think that we have done excellent work on the Beverly Cleary project. But I'm giving you a C because you looked bored. <laughs> Okay, and, and and now for that joke that only readers of this book will get. Um, from from that book joke, we move on to. Uh, I, I guess we should do the opening lines. Of this we've done the opening lines to everything else. Yeah. Um, do you want to do that, or shall I do that? I'll go ahead and do it. I have the I have the actual physical copy of the book here. Wow. Uh, and I love this opening paragraph, so I'm going to read this. The three of us, mother, dad, and I, stood on the sidewalk outside the Greyhound bus station in Portland, Oregon, searching for words we could not find or holding back words we could not speak. The sun, bronze from the smoke of September forest fires, cast an illusory light. Nothing seemed real, but it was. I was leaving, actually leaving for California, the golden state, land of poppies, big red geraniums, trees heavy with oranges, palm trees beneath cloudless skies, and best of all, no depression. I had seen it all on postcards and in the movies, and so had the rest of my class at Grand High School. California was the goal of many. John Steinbeck had not yet, in 1934, revised our thinking. We, we, we commented the last time that with Girl from Yamhill, uh, Cleary starts with something of a juvenile voice mm-hmm. and it, it grows. Um, here she's just coming in full blast with her adult voice. Yeah. Uh, this is my own two feet, by the way. Right. Uh, listeners who didn't see the title up top. This is my own two feet. This is the I wouldn't I would hesitate to say second half of her memoir. It's more the last two books of a four book like set because this book is clearly divided into two distinct parts as her last book was so uh yeah right and um and it also is sadly incomplete as we will say as we get to the end of this it kind of drops off just at the point that uh i think readers would like her to continue i was literally going to say the exact same thing and i think that is a fault of many authors who write their memoirs or autobiographies uh because the berenstains did that too it's like and then we got our first big book and you all know the rest and i'm like no we don't know the rest there's like 50 (laughs) years of history here that you've just like now you're just like ah 
it's all in the books. And I'm like, no, you wrote about a bunch of bears. Or Beverly Cleary, you wrote about a bunch of kids. You did amazing things after this book ends, and I want to know about that. Yeah. Um, so uh, th- this starts, uh, the story starts with uh, Beverly Cleary leaving uh, to go to junior college mm-hmm. uh, in uh, where? what part of, of California? This is in... It starts out in in San Francisco, doesn't it? Or yeah, right. And and this is basically the as we noted the last time. This is basically the setup for the luckiest girl. Um, yeah. Whereas the last book included a lot of like bits and bobs that would appear in her more juvenile fiction. Uh, this this book has a few things that d- maybe not even specifically happen in her teen writing, but the feeling is there and the the sense of like. Uh, coming into oneself that she that she illustrates those books with are very very much present in in her own life at this point right the 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 beginning but but one of the things that's interesting to me is i thought because the luckiest girl is a full uh novel length that the time she spent with her aunt uh, going to junior college would be more of this book, but it's 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 very little of the book actually. In fact, she she goes to junior college, which I'm not exactly sure what uh, that uh, is equivalent to. Maybe yeah. to today's community college or something like that. Yeah, just getting her like basic credits. Right, and I don't know how that differs from what she got in high school or 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 whatever but she got to go for free and mm-hmm. uh she had a a good time uh eating lots of avocados not it's it's interesting because you can see where in the luckiest girl she has taken a very real incident which is staying with an ex, a somewhat eccentric california family uh eccentric to her someone who grew up in a relatively staid lifestyle in oregon uh people uh, much freer people much uh much wilder in thought than she has been around and she's taken the what really happened to her and romanticized it for her novel because her experience in real life while similar to what happens in the book, uh, is still fraught with misunderstanding and bad hurt feel a lot of hurt feelings and people not really speaking their minds to each other uh, because she's going along thinking that she's a good, welcome, contributing member of this family while she's there, and it slowly becomes like apparent that there's some resentment on the side of the mother of the family uh with with beverly being there and but no one ever speaks to anyone directly about it so she's hearing this all through her mother who's hearing it from the from what's the woman's name verna is that yeah is that verna i believe and and it's that really and she's like oh this is really uncomfortable and then like some grandmas move in and things get really crowded it's it's a lot more it's it's that whole thing where like oh yeah life is a lot more messy and complicated than any children's novel is going to be right so after about a year she goes back to oregon she assumes she's going to be invited back but she isn't right um and her mom is up to the old shenanigans from the last book still wanting her to uh hook up with with gerhardt <laughs> guy he puts in a cameo appearance in the book and it's <laughs> pathetic and sad and then he disappears forever right at one um, point she says that he like show he he drove all the way to 
the house. Was it this this point? At some point, he drives all the way to the house where she is, and then he just sits outside in his car and decides she doesn't want to see him, and then he leaves. And she only finds out about that later. And I'm like, dude, just let it go. Like, <laughs> Beverly Bunn is not interested in you. <laughs> well, also, Beverly Bunn is not interested in hanging around with her parents anymore. She, uh, she had uh, some freedom, especially from the overbearing hand of her mom. Uh, she applies to several places and she gets accepted into, what is it, the University of California in San Francisco. Yeah, oh, is that the first she, thing she is? I can't remember. No, she uh, she bops around. It's it's. I'm gonna I'm gonna be completely upfront here. I had trouble following every place she lived and went to school. Even though I don't think it was that many places, she's her college career kind of just is is kind of a a a vague blend to me because it it, it mostly consisted of her taking a lot of unreasonable classes. Uh, not doing as well as she hoped, having some interesting roommates, and finally ending up in a boarding house with a bunch of men, which is probably the most interesting part of her college life. Uh, and and then graduating and going or going off to grad school. And this is a huge chunk of the book, and it's mostly just like it's. You never worry that she's not going to make it through college because she clearly becomes Beverly Cleary. Right. Well, there's there's a couple things that are going on here. One is. I think anyone who is used to the way that um, higher education works these days, mm-hmm. uh, you, the, the expectation is if one can, one will go through uh, getting their bachelor's degree as quickly as they can. It's been yeah. four years, and unless something strange happens, it will all be at one institution uh, you know, people do transfer if they find it's a, a bad fit. People do drop out if they can't afford it. You know, but but by and large, people just go through and they get their bachelor's and then they look into grad school if they want to. And that's one institution. That's sort of like a very simple, direct story. Cleary seems to be describing a world in which the young women who are going to college uh, at the same time she is are kind of coming for one class or another yeah. and 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 wandering in and out they may or may not be actually trying to get a degree uh, mm-hmm. when she first comes to the uh, what is it Stebbins Hall uh, which is this big uh, dormitory for 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 women uh, she comes at the end of the school year and just shows up and the uh the head of the hall has to tell her no you can't actually come to school now right and i just cannot imagine uh showing up at a university with my suitcase in hand and saying oh well where do i go to classes yep it's 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 very loose um you get the idea that you know like this is a Beverly Cleary paints an interesting picture of the education. I mean, she did in the last book too, but the education system at this point in American history, which is going through a lot of changes, uh, particularly during the Great Depression. Like, people don't have a lot of money, but there's this idea that you still need to go to college if you want to secure a good career. Women aren't expected to do that, but a lot of women seem to be kind of like building this momentum towards women doing that more. Like, there's a certain like group of women who are more career focused and aren't are like you know what i'm not just gonna get married and you see that happening with her friends like some of them are like i guess i'm just gonna marry this guy and start a family and some of them do go off and try to start careers and some succeed it's a very transitional period she talks about that later and i want to touch on that but uh 
but yeah, so she gets to this, she gets to this dormitory and besides just the, the whole like figuring out how to sign up for classes and go to classes and what classes to go to and you have to take a tap dancing final for no reason in one of the classes. Uh, there's also the, 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 pro, the notion that women are expected to behave a certain way. And if you don't behave a certain way, you will be kicked out. Like you will be given, you will be put out on the street from your, from wherever you're living. Like you have to obey these societal rules that everyone's just kind of like, I guess we got to do this or your house mother or whoever will just kick you to the curb. Right. Yeah. No, it, it is, it is true. This is, it's, it's an interesting book because um, it's partly you know, about, Cleary's maturation as a writer and who she's reading, which I found very strange, the things yeah. that she was reading. But but the, whenever she starts over, like the, the first place she goes to, this free college, uh, junior college is called Chaffee. Yes. And then she moves on. And she goes to Berkeley. She goes to, to University Berkeley. of California, Berkeley. Yeah. UC Berkeley. And then she finally ends up in like UC uh, San Francisco or something like that. I, I don't, I don't know where she, she, I think it's, I think it's Chaffee. And then she goes to University of California, Berkeley, which is called Cal. Right. Um, and then she goes to University of Washington and gets her master's degree. Right. It, um, yeah. Yeah. It is. But she it, keeps calling, she keeps calling it Cal, right. which in my mind is something else. So right. no, the, yeah, I think confusing. of that as Cal state. Yes. Right. But, um, but yeah, but, but when she arrives at a place, what she does is she describes at first what life is like for the young women uh, that she's living with and sort of like what her day-to-day -day chores are and, and goes into great detail about the fabric that she makes cl uh, clothing out of. Yes. And then she talks about relationships between young women and young men. And then eventually she gets around to uh the what what she actually studied yes and uh and what she actually studied is usually secondary to what is expected of her in the final like tallying of grades like she makes a she makes a good point in this book that colleges expected ridiculous things of the students at times uh she 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 worries a good deal i believe it's at berkeley uh on the big final examination which is a sit down test that covers things you don't cover in any of your classes you just have to know what to study and who to read and be ready for these massive essays that you may not have any clue what they're going to ask you and good luck kids well i i hate to i hate to break it to you phil that's the way grad school continues to be or at least but is that was... her grad i don't remember that being her was that grad school well or was that... the, the the idea of um the the idea of comprehensives in well, general yeah. Is is I, I find it to be extremely uh, problematic. When I was in, in grad school, and I was one of the reasons I I never got my PhD was I was uh, a an area studies person. I was doing American studies, so I was straddling the art history and the uh, English departments. And I remember trying to prepare for my English comprehensives, and I I remember talking to the professors at Boston University and saying, well, what exactly is going to be on this test? And they said, we can't tell you that. <laughs> and I said, yeah. well, can you just tell me, for example, we're supposed to be studying American literature. Does that include drama? Am I going to have to know the plays of Tennessee Williams? They said, we can't tell you that. 
<laughs> well, that that sounds exactly like what Beverly Cleary went through uh, her senior year in college. Right. Uh, I think she had to read Milton. Uh, she had to read Shakespeare. She had to read. Something. She read Bo- Chaucer. Uh, she read uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson. Um, she- and she didn't do well, like <laughs> uh, initially. Like she had to like retake some stuff. Right. Uh, but it seems like there's so much. Uh, and again, this isn't grad school. This is college. Uh, and there seems to be so many things in her college life that are designed simply to weed out the undesirables uh, uh, from this from college life. And she mentions near the near the uh, middle of like the second half of this book that uh, here I have it right here uh, that. Uh, she says, in, in the 1930s, students did not rebel, probably because we were afraid to. We had too much at stake, and in our eagerness to prepare for security and a better future, were much too humble. When in the 1950s, students began to rebel at Cal, I recalled a number of injustices to students and wished my generation had had the same courage. I doubt if any student today is graded on facial expression, has graduation depend on composing an original tap dance, or is required to write 24 pages on Plato, teacher, and theorist. Cal's dreaded English comprehensive has been abolished. And she wrote that and it totally blew my mind because she grew up as a a child, a young adult of the Depression. And frequently when people write about that era, they write about it from this very romantic, in this very romanticized way. Like these are people who faced hardship and grew up knowing the value of a dollar and grew up knowing the value of hard work and it made them better people for it. And her perspective seems to be, yes, to an extent, but also it made us terrified to stand up for ourselves because we were so afraid of losing everything again. It actually took the next generation to come along and make the changes that we didn't have the courage to do. And I never, I, I never, I've rarely seen writers take their experience and frame it that way before. Yeah. When I was in college, uh, I, I I took a course on 18th century English literature when I was studying uh, this one s- semester abroad. And we read uh, Henry Fielding and we read, uh, you know, um, Boswell and we 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 read all the stuff that she the plays the the, the books she mentions in here like Pamela and Tom Jones and stuff by um you know Swift and and, and stuff I love that stuff but it it is a very esoteric subject <laughs> and and I would not recommend it as a way to become a better writer in, in any way you know it's 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 interesting if you are interested in it it's yeah. absolutely deadly if you are not interested in it don't and, you have like an entire podcast about this <laughs> <laughs> like isn't that like the actual thesis of your other podcast right right well 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 phil I, i'm inviting you on the podcast and, and we, we will discuss tom jones listen because of the YA novel that Mitzi is currently reading, I am having to read the Epic of Gilgamesh just to understand many of the references it's making. And I'm like, I didn't plan on reading the Epic of Gilgamesh this year, but in order to understand this book written for 11-year-olds, I'm having to do that. So, Well, uh, the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh is a, is a short epic. You know? It is, but there's a lot of sex in it. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, but there is not a lot of sex in My Own Two Feet by Beverly Cleary. Uh, she's not interested in men, uh, like as a as a as a like as a, a distraction. Uh, but there is one gentleman who has caught her fancy, uh, 
unlike Gilgamesh, he is a an upright uh, young man and is not too forward with her. But his name is Clarence Cleary, a last name that will have some importance later on. Right. Well, she does a great job of introducing him, you yeah. know, in this very understated way. There, there was also, uh, you know, uh, again, absolutely horrifying uh, the story she tells about these hangers on at the at the colleges that she's she went to mm-hmm. they were she went to a, a a a dance with this older gentleman who have turned out to have been married and and <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> and it's sort of like what is, what is this guy doing hanging around this college in the first place but um well his wife shows up at the right. dance doesn't yes <laughs> and 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 his wife has has very uh sour words for uh, beverly bond uh which seems kind of unfair yeah but you know she's in a situation yeah she's got to go pull her husband away from yet another college dance <laughs> Which, for some reason, because it's set in the 30s, and I guess, like, in my mind, like, I'm, I'm still picturing, like, uh, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life and situations like that where everyone looks like they're in their 50s anyway because everyone is. Like, to me, like, imagining a, a married guy going to an actual college dance in the year 2021 seems weird and, like, really <laughs> gross and off-putting. It makes a little more sense in the 30s where everyone's just kind of, like... We all grew up too soon, but yeah, that poor woman, she's gone to her share of keggers and had to pull her husband away. Right. Um, in, the, in the midst of all this, though, Cleary is uh, developing some interesting ideas about writing. When she was at uh, the junior college, she talks about having given, been given her first assignment to write a short story. Yeah. And she says, she says very pointedly, and in those days, a short story was supposed to have a plot. Yeah. Which, I, which I think is uh, as, as a dig. I, I wonder right. if, if Cleary was reading Raymond Carver disapprovingly or something. Uh, yeah, she does. She, she, she comments very little on literature, like sort of as a probably as a you know, like as a courtesy to like. But she does get in a few of those a few of those little digs, um, uh, her opinions on things. One thing I wish she did more of, though, is frame frame what's going on a little more historically or sort of give us a little more context as to what's going on in the actual United States because this book is written for young readers. It seems to be written for young readers. Uh, she she glosses over a lot of the ugliness. Uh, uh, she does, there's, there's no Uncle John chapter in this one or whatever his name was, like the creepy uncle in the last book. There's none of that. Uh, she has, she mentions a miscarriage at one point and it gets all of one sentence in this entire book. Um, so like a lot of the ugliness, a lot of the, like that stuff sort of stays sort of hinted at and kind of in the shadows. But, uh, she mentions that her parents, when she starts seeing Clarence Cleary sort of semi-seriously, her parents, uh, viciously disapprove of him because he's Catholic. And one thing that stuck out to me was that she doesn't explain to the reader in any way why that would be a problem to them uh and i'm to me if i was a young reader reading this like now i get it now i understand that but if if i was reading this when i was like in junior high i would have just been like i don't understand like what's the big deal about a catholic like to me as a kid like that didn't mean anything and i there's a few places in this book where i kind of wish she had given us a little more texture just so just to sort of frame that kind of information yeah no i i agree there was um there was a a part also later that i found really fascinating which was her first job out of uh 
out of school was at this um this small t- uh city in Washington state what was it uh Yakima Yakima Yak- right Yakima y- Yakima Yakima, Yakima. Yeah. Uh, and and there again there's a lot of read between the lines about the class differences yeah. and the cultural differences uh, there again issues of catholicism and protestantism mm-hmm. come up uh, because a lot of the people living there are of french canadian descent right um but but you wish there was more uh discussion of that you know you wish she had uh turned her attention to that with the same alacrity that she turned her attention to describing the fabric that uh, <laughs> a man's <laughs> coat was made out of and i think that she's it's it's a quality that I think is a strength of hers in her children's writing because she understands that children don't need to know that they they care more about the emotion they care more about the immediacy to the to the individual and to the family like it doesn't really you don't need to understand like the what the adults are going through all you need to understand is that it is upsetting to the children uh, but. I feel like it's, a, it, I won't even say a detriment to this book because the book is still very well written and still very engaging. It's, but it's, it's, it's noticeably glossed over. It's noticeably lacking. Uh, it, it's taken 44 years of my experience to fill in a lot of those gaps in what she's talking about. Right, right. Um, there, there are a, a couple fascinating thing, uh, things if you, if you, if you're willing to Google them. Uh, early. Early in their courtship, Clarence uh, sings uh, to to young Beverly, uh, "Does your heart beat for me?" And you're the one rose that's left in my heart. And of course, yeah. I had to immediately look those up on on YouTube. Um, <laughs> How does your heart beat for me? Was from 1936. It was a big band uh, tune. But uh, you're the one rose that's left in my heart. It was was an early Bing Crosby song. Uh, and and they're both worth uh, looking up. They're very charming, uh, and and I again, you you wish there were more um, discussion of the color of that moment because that was an interesting time. That was toward the end of the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a little bit more uh, cautious economic optimism at the same time that there there was absolute pessimism about what was happening in in Europe. Yeah, it was sort of the last hurrah for uh frivolity in in popular culture for for a while right she does mention like every once in a while she mentions popular music playing and you do get a little bit of that texture but uh yeah there's what she chooses to focus on i think says as much about her as it does about what she's writing about uh uh, she does emphasize you know over and over again the lessons she's learned as a writer like even before she becomes a writer which is which is you know like focus on the details people love the details and uh, if nothing else make it funny is kind of one of her (laughs) things Uh, which she pointedly doesn't do a lot of in this book Uh, when she does throw in humor it's it's very good but uh, there was one passage that actually befuddled me where he when she was talking about her professor of 18th century literature professor layman and Mm -hmm. she says um one sentence that he repeated has stayed with me all my life and i often think of it as i write the proper subject of the novel is universal human experience a phrase that has also stayed with me is the minutiae of life those details that Mm -hmm. give reality to fiction it is a long leap from peregrine pickle tristram shandy the mysteries of adolfo and all the other novels we studied that year to the books i write about henry ramona and lee botts I think that's funny that she puts Lee Bots. Lee Bots, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, everyone's favorite Lee Botts. <laughs> but the thing that's that's funny about that to me is I don't think about the those 18th century novels as being particularly interested in universal human experience they're interested very uh pointedly in the uh experience of the landed gentry of uh, (laughs) (laughs) the 18th century english aristocracy um well maybe she was saying that like the parts that do stick with you is when they become like when they do signal like focus in on ex- human emotions and experiences that we can ex- like relate to maybe i don't know like i know there's not a ton of that in some of those books but uh <laughs> well um yeah uh <laughs> <laughs> but i never i never wrote to a guy named mr henshaw so maybe <laughs> it's all it's you know it's all relative um uh, but but what's funny is she also doesn't really talk about trying to become a children's author for a long time in this book. It's mostly about wanting to become a children's librarian. Uh, and, uh, you know, she includes the anecdote. I think it's in it's in Yakima where she runs into the kids who are like the, the, the boys who are like, there ain't no books in here for... For us, Miss Miss Bun, <laughs> and then they, and I don't know, they like, walked back into the set of Oliver. Well, I was gonna, no, I was gonna say, then they uh, they stage a, a a variety show for all their friends, but no one comes because they're all in the variety show except for Froggy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but uh, uh it, it, she includes that. It, you can sort of see the the seeds being being laid but she keeps saying like she 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 thinks about it but God, her life is just so busy that who has time to sit down and write yeah yeah um after she marries uh Clarence mm-hmm. uh and she 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 moves he's a he's a what an agricultural inspector yeah uh, which is which actually brings him to some interesting places uh first of all he works for the state of california in sacramento then he is uh called to work on a army base um i think it's while he's working at the army base that she gets this job in the this local bookstore that's very uh that has a has a large uh children's book section and she gets it based upon the strength of her knowledge of children's literature but i there there is something here that i find curious because she talks about she she's she talks about moving there in what like 1939 or 1940 and she talks about how one of the the things that she sells uh, that sells like gangbusters is the little golden books and we're talking about the pokey little puppy the little engine that could anyone anyone who knows what little golden books are knows about them but those didn't get published until 1942 okay so and and at first i thought oh well maybe she's conflating maybe she works here for several years and she's just conflating these things but no in in another uh in another 20 pages or so pearl harbor happens which is 1941 okay so so then later in the book, after the war, she talks about going back and working at the bookstore again. So I assume what happens is she's remembering that period when she's talking about the little golden books. Yeah, but there's, she goes back and forth to that bookstore quite a few times. Right, but there, but 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 there's these points where the, the, she doesn't quite get it right, and I, I and it, it bothers me. She also talks about when she's working on the at the army base. Here it's like 1942. She talks about people going around whistling the 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 songs from Oklahoma, which was on Broadway in 1943. Yeah, uh, 
uh, so she's a big liar. Is I guess what, her, is, I guess what yeah, you're trying a, to say. Exactly. I, this I, whole I, book I've, is garbage. I've cracked. The, I've cracked the code. <laughs> you saw the. This is. Uh, I, I. We are currently going through the same thing on uh, on the Babysitters Club podcast that I, I co-host with Christy Admiral because uh, the the all for all intents and purposes these shows came out in 1990 and yet. Uh, one of the episodes features the playbill from the 1992 production of Guys and Dolls, uh, which oh, the sort one of... with uh, Gallagher what? and uh, and uh, what's his name? <laughs> not, you, Peter Gallagher, Peter not Gallagher. Gallagher the, <laughs> no, the Peter comedian. Gallagher and and uh, <laughs> Nathan Lane. Nathan and Lane, Lane right? Yeah, I saw. I got uh, to see that in in uh, so the touring I. company. That's great. Oh, I saw. I saw it on uh, on Broadway. But <laughs> the uh, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, this show came out in 1990, and this playbill shows up, and that reference they referenced seeing Guys and Dolls on. Broadway and it suddenly made us realize that like every single notation online of when this show actually aired is incorrect like it couldn't have even been filmed until 92 because it's the actual playbill and every single every single instance of of the show's air dates has simply been copied and recopied into every, from one incorrect source uh, until everyone just thinks that's when every one of these episodes aired and uh and I, to me, like now knowing this about the Beverly Cleary, this Beverly Cleary book, it's it's probably one of those stories she told so many times in her life that, and with such confidence that nobody ever, like her editor, her, I, I I'm assuming that someone helped her put this book together. Like uh, it's a memoir, so it, she, it probably went through like an editorial process where people were like, I leave this out, leave, you know, this is, you know, she had an editor. You know, this this happens to, to be fair to 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 Ms. Clary, this happens to me all the time. I uh-huh. the, the I the the early '90s. I was in grad school, and they're kind of a wash in my memory. And I always think like, oh, that must have been around what '93. Mm-hmm. And the only way I can actually place a memory from that time is I think back what song was playing on the radio at that time, and then I look and see when it came out. Yeah. No. Uh, and and this you know this is the 19. 19- early 1940s we're talking about she wrote this book in the 1990s like i'm gonna give her a little leeway and people probably weren't we're just like the gold little gold who, like they came out at some point like who cares it's not like it's a huge part of the story but it does make me wonder how many other lies she's telling in this book <laughs> who was gerhard we'll never know I was uh, also uh, fascinated to find out that the original edition of Little Fur Family actually had real fur on it. I <laughs> it, unless it didn't. <laughs> Only Margaret Wise Brown knows. Beverly Cleary story like, oh, all the books had fur back then. Before the war. <laughs> Took away all of our fur supplies. <laughs> no, but she did work at this bookstore, and I was fascinated to find because I worked in a bookstore for several years, and I was fascinated just to discover that working in a bookstore is not the experience has not changed uh, throughout the generations. It's pretty much the same thing: You're just shelving books, trying to figure out which books you need, uh, trying to deal with unruly customers, and the holidays stink. Yeah. So, so then the war happens, and as you say, this is the probably the most interesting part of the book is yeah um clary gets a job as what's the 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 actual title is something really weird like hostess or something like that she well she has a job as uh as she's she's the post librarian right uh, essentially like there's a library at the u.s army hospital in oakland california um 
she has the Jabba's librarian, but they give her a different title that because she's officially part of the army at this point. So she has like rank and uh, and with that rank comes certain privileges and rights. But it's also she's not. So there's people who refuse to recognize her within within the rank that she has. It's fascinating because all of a sudden we go from college life to book life to army life, which has a whole new slew of rules and regulations and expectations, particularly for women, but also for a woman who's just the librarian. Right. You know, definitely. And and um, and and here we have one of those uh, brief moments of ugliness when uh, the CO that hires her basically pause her <laughs> on the on the way in to show her off the library. Um, Cleary d- determines that he's probably going to leave so I can tough it out. And fortunately, she was right. Yes. Uh, she heard that, like, these guys come and go. Like, don't worry about them. Like, they're they're going to be there. But, uh, and yeah. And so this library is built within the hospital. Like, like it's right there. And it's in this large area with, like, a, with, like, a, what's the double door? Uh, oh, the, du- the Dutch door. It has a Dutch door. There's a whole, like, drama about the Dutch door. Um and it's the it's the it's the library for the for the men in the hospital. Like they she they get requests from wounded soldiers, uh, from sick soldiers, and they fulfill those requests. And what amazes me is like kind of how much freedom they had to like get the books that the soldiers wanted, um, and also like the strange relationships they would develop with these soldiers. Uh, one of whom in the dark, like probably the darkest passage of the of the uh of the entire book is like she's like there was this one guy who would come in and we all loved him and he was hilarious and then one day he just disappeared and we asked about him and people were like oh yeah he was a rapist and a prisoner yeah and you're like oh okay great like she's <laughs> like she's like that's war for you <laughs> yeah it was um there's there's lots of of these fascinating little anecdotes you know this is the first time she acknowledges uh african americans at all of the, mm-hmm. these books she talks about uh, a a young soldier calling his wife on the phone to ask what a creole is yeah. um there's uh there, there's just as, as she says people come and go this is uh, a a domestic uh, hospital during the war so they're probably getting a lot of people from the pacific uh theater coming yeah. back but but that's a it's, a it's a strange thing you know t- to be there in the midst of world war Two. it's a, a quiet place um uh, and the 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 people there are a bunch of oddballs um, right yeah it's and she does mention at one point briefly she mentions watching uh japanese family her neighbors be sent off to the internment camps right like there is like it briefly gets mentioned she's like huh well i guess that's part of what's going on and then that's it she moves on like, there's no there's no further reflection because that's not the story she's telling but if you if you know that part of history which i hope people do like it sent chills up my spine i was just like oh wow okay this is right this is what's happening in america right now right. um but again her experience is complete you have to remember that like the books uh, the girl from yamhill s- starts off with a little girl who is 
only a few years from people it's from people who their only mode of transportation was horses now she is uh now she is in the midst of world war ii and and the world is moving forward like things are moving very quickly uh around her and she's just trying to be a good librarian and get the double swinging door replaced with a real door and keep people from ruining this library that she's working so hard on putting together sure <laughs> yeah she has a good anecdote also about uh these um italian expatriates uh oh who, yeah who left because they were on the run from fascism uh and and the uh the um chaplain for the, the hospital gets a italian uh catholic priest to come uh to talk to to one of them who thinks uh hor- is horrified because he thinks he's being read the, his last last rites right because um, you don't get a priest to visit you in the hospital where he's from unless it's the end of the line <laughs> he's going in for i think an appendectomy right and uh and yes it's uh yeah, it's just it's these little stories like that just that kind of color this. But I would read an entire book of this. I would. I don't know anything about the army at all, and I certainly don't know anything about military life in stateside during the war. And it is what you. It's very much like this catch twenty two world of just. You ask for something you need, and the 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 higher up says absolutely not. So then you jump rank and you ask the next person, and then they say yeah. And it's learning how to play this game and learning how to like uh, to like pacify the people who need to be pacified, and learning who you can challenge, and just learning that there's just this endless bureaucracy. And I would have loved a Beverly Cleary Catch Twenty Two esque, almost Vonnegut esque look at at what it's like to be a librarian in the midst of in the midst of World War II. That would have been a great novel. Well, well Phil, uh what I say is we should write up a a treatment for a prestige series on HBO about this. Uh, you know, it could be a or a Netflix series. I, I was going to say I would hate to see what HBO I don't well, want a Beverly Cleary series <laughs> that begins with nudity. <laughs> well, let's just do, let's go to to, to Netflix. It's, it's, yeah, okay. it's as, as as they say on um, on on Rick and Morty. Morty, it's a very achievable uh, goal to, to get a Netflix series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, after the war, mm-hmm. and after the 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 brief description of this um, of this uh, miscarriage, Cleary is in a funk, and she goes with. Uh, her husband to a party in in Berkeley and talks about how she loves all the uh, bohemians she meets there the uh, the artists the uh, architects the writers and she demands that they move to Berkeley yeah and what's interesting this is interesting to me for two reasons one is this is basically the setup for socks this is the the young couple in socks moving into this um you know the, 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 this kind of bohemian lifestyle uh, of the late '40s, early '50s, and I just want to know who the who, who were these artists that were enticing Clary at the time. This was yeah. I wanted I wanted names. I wanted yeah. I wanted her to I wanted to find out that like Beverly Cleary and Salvador Dali had like a <laughs> had like a really interesting conversation once right. upon a time. Well, I I associate 
late 40s, early 50s in San Francisco with the Beatniks mm-hmm. and with the Beat uh, poets. Kerouac, uh, you yeah. know, famously wrote a lot about San Francisco. Um, I, I would, I, I wonder if if she was reading any of that. I, I wanted to, I, I was hoping, you know, we'd get to see her with her hair down here. I was maybe, maybe if you go through Kerouac's writings, you'll find reference to a party in San Francisco where he, he talked to some up and coming children's book writer, and then you'll know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, there's there is story here that is not being told, uh, that is that is being glossed over. But yeah, and that that, that stands out. But I want to go back to what you said about this all being, in a way, these two books are not a build up to her first published novel. They are a build up to socks. She calls out the cat in the chapter title, like right. She wants you to know how important socks was and listeners to this show know that we lost our entire listenership due to the controversy of our socks episode <laughs> where we declared it to be all right it's an all right book uh so yeah much more important much more important tale in in beverly cleary's history than we gave it credit for uh but no it, it is it is that texture it is finding out about those things that that lead me to understand that clear i mean if if, if these last two books haven't done that it's She's a fascinating woman with a lot going on inside her head. Like there's a a lot of experience there, and uh, and this is the part where she starts building up to the Henry Huggins story. Yeah, she. This is the thing that I I guess you know both of us wish we could have more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the she talks in very uh, clear uh, detail about how Henry Huggins emerged out of just as we suspected it emerged out of a short story mm-hmm. that uh she was told was too short there's not really a market for children's short stories but right. there is a market for children's uh chapter books and they said if you wanted to put these vignettes together you could make a, a children's book and that's what she does she makes vignette after vignette and they're all based upon very specific things uh from her memory it uh, also talks about her her slightly mercenary attitude toward like she realizes early on first of all for all you up-and-coming young authors out there or not so young authors out there please understand <laughs> that beverly cleary's first ever book was immediately agreed to be published and became a smash hit and she never looked back. Like the first thing she ever wrote for children became her success story. She worked, she didn't, she she just wrote it and it was good. Like they were like, she handed this short story over to a publisher and they were like, you build on this, you got a guaranteed deal. And that was it. That was her life from that point on. Um, not to, you know, not to, you know, not, no, no tea, no shade. She, she worked, she busted her butt for many years in the, in the trenches. But uh, it is funny that I was like, oh, this is the first, like, wow, she just, she just did it. She decided to become a children's author and she did it. But they, she took it to a, she was told by a publisher friend, basically, like, you write this thing, I will publish it. And she wrote that thing and then was like, I don't have to give it to this little publisher. I can give this to a bigger publisher. And even though I kind of told them I would let, the, I, I told them I'd think about it. I never guarantee that to them. I need to take this to someone bigger. And she does. And, and I respect that choice on her part that she was like, I can, this can, this can hit it big. This is good. I'm good enough 
that I don't have to just give this to the first person who offered me a, a deal. I can take this to a bigger a bigger house. And she does. Uh, and they actually tell her, they were like, write a few of these stories and get them published in magazines and then we'll talk. And she doesn't, I don't think she even does that. I think she just writes the book and hands it in. And is like, I did it. I wrote all these little stories and wrapped it all up in an ending that I don't like. See what you think about it. And I will make any changes you ask. Right. Just to back up one second here, you talk about the success she had right there. I know a little bit about the about publishing history. And one of the things to, to note is that at this time, there weren't a lot of children's books yeah. being published in, in a year. Uh, unlike today, when children, it seems like children's books yeah. and young adult books are the only thing keeping publishing houses afloat anymore. And everyone and, and her mother thinks that they can write a, a picture book and why not? You know, why, why can't I just get published? Uh, but she wrote uh, a, a, a book for kids at a time when there were very few options. Yeah. And all the options that were out there were things like Peter Pan, little Lord Flanteroy, you know, the, the secret garden. They were very, uh, genteel, very European, uh, you know, we and, had and, Homer Price by this point, didn't we? Um, did we have Homer Price? I thought was, that was a little later. Was Homer Price after? Oh, I guess I'm mistaken. I, I thought there was. I thought there was one book we talked about in Henry Huggins that came before Henry Huggins that was vaguely Henry Huggins esque, but was still a little more fantastical than Henry Huggins. But I could be wrong. I could be thinking about something else. Um, you know, I it covered, was no Homer Price was published in in 1943. You're right. Um, yeah, yeah. But again, Homer Price was a little more like comedy and a little less like grounded in its, I mean, he makes a donut machine, but, uh, remind me at the, at the end of this uh, podcast, I have some housekeeping and, and, and your Homer Price, uh, comment reminded me of something that I, okay. will, I will bring up then. <laughs> um, you brought up something, uh, very important though, that I've covered in uh, deep in bear country, which is post-World War II. Yes, there was this the children's publishing industry was invented from the ground up at this point. Uh, it did not exist. It was, I mean, there were children's books, obviously, but your children's authors tended to be the same authors who were writing adult pieces in in magazines. And they were just, whoever was around and would do it, they got them to do it. And, uh, you know, covering Dr. Seuss and the Berenstains, uh, Dr. Seuss was instrumental in creating the the children's publishing industry for picture books, but also getting like, uh, I can't remember her name. I'm so embarrassed. Uh, Bennett Cerf's wife, um, whose name is, uh, I'm just going to slap myself for this, but uh, she was also in instrumental in forming like the basis of what we think of as children's publishing. So you're right. Like this world didn't exist. So anyone who dared step foot in it and produced a quality product was given a shot like they were they were like oh you're you 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 would do this this isn't real writing you understand and people were like no nah, it's, it's good i i see that there's something coming out of all this books for kids and and it was beverly cleary and dr seuss and a few other a handful of other authors who uh who made enough of an impact that publishers saw saw dollar signs and just that's when they started grabbing uh your pd eastman's and uh your stan and jan Berenstains and said, hey, if you want to write something for kids, you can set aside all those dirty cartoon books you've been publishing and, and, <laughs> and write something family friendly. And they were like, all right. And they did it. I, I think it's great. And Beverly Cleary was one of the ones who started from first base with, I want to write something for kids. 
yeah no that that that's that's absolutely true um i i i i love this little passage here because it clearly as you say is very mercenary and she also has no ego about what she's doing on the one hand she realizes that she's a very good author and she mm. realizes that she can do this but when she gets uh her response back from the publisher who among other things changes the dog's name to ribsy tells her to lose the last chapter and rewrite it and you know she does and she's she's very grateful for those things because this is the kind of extremely uh, practical advice that mm -hmm. she had not gotten in, in college right and i loved it because you and i talked about how the final chapter in henry huggins always seemed like it seemed like a bunch of short stories and then there was like oh you got to wrap this up somehow so we'll bring in this story about a boy who shows up out of nowhere and is like that's my dog uh and it's fascinating that that was originally i guess the circus showed up it was like that's our dog and and she and they were like, you got to get because I guess Ribsy was originally going to be a, a circus dog who had escaped. And the publisher was like, it's all it's all cool and very relatable until you get to the circus. And what what does that have to do with anything? No kid wants to read about the circus. And she basically says, like, from that moment on, I was like, you know what? You're right. No kid does want to read about the circus. Like whenever a circus shows up in a children's book, it's always the worst thing. And I'm like, what, what was the deal with circuses around this time? Because there were so many clowns in culture <laughs> in the early 50s. You know, there was Clarabelle Clown. There was it was the the, the rice, the, the rice Krispies clown. There was the. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because. It's that weird thing. It's it's like when you look at old Mickey Mouse dolls or the original like Disneyland costumes or just stuffed animals or kids drawings in general at the time, no one really knew what appealed to children. They only <laughs> knew what like 45-year-old men in dark gray suits who stank of cigar smoke and never went home in the evenings thought they knew about children. And I think one of them said, I don't know, clowns at one point. And kids like the circus, right? I take my stupid kids to the circus once a year. They seem happy. And so someone was like, I guess circuses are what kids want. Because you're right. Like circuses, I have children's books from like when I was very young that are like, the circus is in town. And even as a kid, I was like, I guess that's appealing. I don't know. Circuses are kind of loud and aggressive and they smell really bad. But I guess if you're telling me that's what kids like. So, yeah, she thought, oh, I guess a circus because that that's what appeals to children. And it took the publisher to be like, no, you know what? Here's I'll let you in a little secret. Kids don't actually care about the circus. And But what they do care about is another kid showing up and trying to take their dog away. And so she was like, great. Well, I guess the other thing is that um, until the, the, the 50s, there was no TV. Right. And there were very few movies for kids. Mm. So um, people were probably remembering their own childhoods. And the circus was probably the only thing they had going for them. That's true. Like, because her books are filled with with vaguely anachronistic things, like Ramona and uh, Henry walking on uh, coffee can stilts. Even, even that's something that Beverly Cleary did in the Depression. Like, because yeah, she's coloring it with things from her own experience. Yeah, yeah. Also, the dog was originally named 
spare ribs spare ribs which would have been terrible so and I, when they say like call the dog either ribs or ribsy because spare ribs nah and she was like oh you're right i'm kind of an idiot for not realizing that that's a terrible name for a dog uh but i do like that she she based ribsy on a real experience that she uh that she in, like heard about which is which is a family taking a dog on a trolley in a in a in a box and so she was like, I'll just change it to like a kid and it's a it's a bus instead of a trolley and we'll just go from there. Like, that's a fun story because it's rare that like authors, if you ask them, where do you get your ideas from, are going to just be like, oh, this actual thing that happened. But Cleary's like, no, there was a few actual things that happened and I I used those as jumping off points for my stories. I feel like she's very open about that. Right. Like, that's, well, a, that's yeah. When we get to the end of this book, there's there's two things that stick in my mind about it. One is Cleary remains an extremely witty and dry writer who had mm-hmm. there's there's humor all through this book but it's extremely dry and yeah. she's she she i said before she reminds me of jane austen i i i feel that really strongly i i, I was wondering why she didn't list jane austen as one of her uh influences but two she has no preciousness about anything. She's very like there's nothing magical about what she does. There's nothing there's no she she doesn't want to protect her uh process nor does she want to uh over embellish what's going on. She t- talks just very plainly about where her ideas come from and how she formed the books and and what steps she took. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I think that's part of her like her philosophy about writing which is just like don't be don't be precious don't be coy just tell it like it is be honest and uh and you've got a you've got a good book you got a good book out of it uh what is the thing you you wanted me to remind you of oh well if if we're if we're done with the book there's there's well that's it because that's how the book ends right like henry (laughs) huggins gets published and and she she, finds a lucky uh nickel she finds that's the one thing in the book that i'm like wait what you're lucky, Nickel. Beverly Cleary. Are you gonna are you gonna pull this at the very end? Um uh yeah, yeah. No, it ends it ends it does end with the lucky nickel uh stories. A talisman of all the good fortune that had come to me. Friends, readers, awards, travel, children of my own, financial security. Uh oh yeah, children of her own. Uh her friends all started having kids, and her mother, who remained a, a dill pickle up to the end of her life, was just like, Don't have kids, that's just a fad. And Beverly Cleary's like, I never understood what my mom meant by like having kids was a fad. So when she was 80, I finally asked her what she meant. And her only response was, I said it, didn't I? And I'm like, her mom remains so weird. The, the, the one thing we didn't mention was the first time uh, Clarence Clement, Clarence uh Cleary comes up to visit the family. Her mom wears the dress that Beverly Bunn was wearing when he met when she met uh, Clarence, and it's so <laughs> so strange and so weirdly Freudian. There's a her relationship with her mother never gets comfortable throughout these books. There's never any like basically what happens is her mom gets old, and as her mom gets old, she chills out a lot. Like that's kind of what I gathered from the way she talks about. It. Like finally, her mom just stops being a jerk all the time. But you never learn like what was going. Like she only has speculation as to what was going on in her mom's head throughout her entire life. And it's basically like her mom was this super awesome lady who wanted to live cool and free, couldn't do that because she married a farmer. Then the depression hit. Then she had kids. She never got the life she wanted, and she resented her daughter forever for getting a better life than her. The end. And then Beverly Cleary finds a magic nickel and says, 
I always knew after Henry Huggins came out that I was going to be a famous author and live happily ever after. And she sure did. Like, she sure did. <laughs> okay, so, so, so on to a couple, of things, a couple of points I wanted to make. Uh, last episode, you were mentioning the Great Brain series yes. as, as another uh, book of series that you were very fond of. And I said, oh, those ones were illustrated by uh, Robert McCloskey. I was wrong. I was thinking of the Henry Reed Incorporated books. Those were oh. written, those were illustrated by Robert Klossy. I don't know if you've you ever read those. Henry uh, Reed Incorporated. Yeah, by Keith the, there was a series of books uh, about a young boy, Henry Reed, who. Oh, I see. It, it, I always conflated them when I was young with the Great Brain books because Henry Reed was a precocious kid who basically in each book starts up some sort of a new uh, business for himself. And um, that's sort of the premise of it. It's, it's sort of, I guess it's sort of Phineas and Ferb, but in the 1950s. I'm familiar with the covers, but I'm familiar with the uh, the later covers now that I'm looking at them. Uh, the Dedell Yearling editions uh, from probably the, the 1980s. I'm like, I see, I've seen these pictures, but I have never read any Henry Reed book. Oh, uh, well, but he lives go. in Grover's Corners, which is interesting. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, but no, uh, the Great Brain books by John D. Fitzgerald um, looks like they were illustrated by uh, Mercy. Mr. Mayor. Oh, yeah. Before he went entirely little critter on us. Um, I, I love I love old Mercer Mayer. I love like the the frog, the dog, and the he's great. His yeah, stuff those was were, great. Those were great. I don't know. I, I I'm not as fond of what he became as a sort of an, an industry, uh, you know, where he. I think that by by the end he was not really doing anything on any of the, any of those little. If you ever books. want, if you ever want someone to speak with great acidity about Mercer Mayer, uh, sit down and talk with Mike Berenstain because. Mercer Mayer was famous in his family for dogging the Berenstains' uh, footsteps. Everything the Berenstains did, Mercer Mayer would come along and do right after it, up to uh, titles of books, up to <laughs> choosing to do chapter books as soon as the Berenstains did, the religious books as soon as the Berenstains did. And you could there was a little animosity because they felt like the little critter books were just aping the Berenstain bears and they just couldn't shake him. Like he was just always dogging their heels. <laughs> that's, that's my first Again, brilliant illustrator in his own right. He did some amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that, that was what I needed to remind you of was Henry. No, no. Well, well, that was what I, you, that was one thing to remind you of, but oh, okay. I wanted, to, I wanted to, to, to say a couple other quick things. Cause this is my last chance to talk about, uh, Beverly Cleary this Christmas. I got a couple of really nice presents. One, uh, from my lovely wife, Marina is a, a an original mm. first edition of Ramona forever from Beautiful. 1984 the the tea green illustrations in here are just amazing and they they look their best in this hardcover edition so if you can ever get your hands on one of these hardcover editions i i recommend it but i, I that is that is the exact edition i owned oh, when i was a go. kid because i got it the week it came out <laughs> and the um the other thing, my my brother Dan and his uh, girlfriend Audrey got me the new book, The Art of Ramona Quimby, which uh, is a book that covers all the different il illustrators that have done Ramona Quimby. And I wanted to say a, cu a couple things. One is we have been very uh, critical of Tracy Dockery. Yes. The illustrator of the current editions of Beverly Cleary. And as I look through this book, 
I see some of her preliminary sketches and I see some of the earliest illustrations she did. And I think those are actually quite competent and quite charming. I think what happened was as she went on, she started to really rely upon uh, digital uh the the digital uh, imagery that she was working I I I believe she's working in Illustrator looking Mm -hmm. at these things and there are problems that come up with that because it's very easy to move things around so people you know people tend to start to look like they're floating above the ground or or the the sizes are off because what's happening is people are just taking those things and moving them and resizing them instead of working with the uh the full picture at once uh and and so i want to be um kind kinder to docre and say i think that those early illustrations and particularly her um her sketches are, are are quite uh quite good but um the, the the real revelation of this book was um i'm gonna blank on her name um the the illustrator of the ramona, the ramona books um before uh tracy dockery was jacqueline rogers yes yes and those those are quite lovely and mm-hmm. uh I'm, I'm sorry that those had sort of a short shelf life so to speak um, I understand that art directors want to have all the books in a series illustrated by a single person, but um, those are, are really quite interesting if you go back on those ones. I, I, I like those very much. I had the benefit of reading bits of that book when it was when it was coming out, and I read some of this stuff, uh, either that I don't remember if it was that Doc Ray wrote or that that was written about her. I don't remember if it's her words uh, or someone else writing about her work, but it did give me a, a a, a a deeper appreciation for what she was doing and kind of what she was up against. Uh, uh, we we posited in our early episodes that she had a she was working against a, a very tight schedule as well. Like she had to she had to illustrate these books so that they could all kind of come out together right. um, as part of a set. And every other every illustrator who worked on them as they were being written obviously had a ton more time to finesse the images and also work with Beverly Cleary on them. And and so and also her stuff was a lot more cartoony and a lot more trying to be contemporary. Uh, She had to draw helmets on everybody. Um, (laughs) But. Uh, but I did. I I what what little I have actually read of that book. I I say if you're if you're interested in the world of of Ramona's illustrations, is obviously the only resource we really have. So uh, so yeah, definitely pick up a copy. Uh, I was jealous when I saw you'd gotten it. <laughs> oh. Phil, Phil was, come, come up, uh, come up to Boston. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you read whenever you want to. You know, when all this blows over, it is definitely on our list of of places to visit. Uh, I've, I've, I have known you for so many years now, and <laughs> to have never actually been in your presence has always is, is still something that I'm just like not not happy with. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. Um, do you have any uh, final uh, business you want to get out of the way uh, before we shut this thing? down uh how long have we been doing this show now oh my god like not episode wise episode wise we've been doing it for about a half a year yeah because this is only episode 32 (laughs) (laughs) okay so apparently our very first episode henry huggins was released april 27th 2016 you hate to hear it folks 
<laughs> it's it's been five uh almost five years since uh since we initially conceived of this of this project to get through 30 some odd episodes um uh, a very small body of work all things considered uh, uh especially considering that some of these books are very short reads uh but uh final thoughts on this is that Going through Beverly Cleary's body of work is, especially in chronological order as it was written, as she as she produced them, is an immensely satisfying experience. Uh, uh, we, I learned, I noticed things about these books that I that I had never noticed before. I I found gems in her teen books that I had never expected to find. I would never have read them if I hadn't been doing this. And I am amazed that one author was able to produce such a consistent body of work over her life. And that I, I, my only regret is that she didn't produce more, that she didn't uh, give us those adult novels that we wished for or uh, that final autobiography. Like, as you said, this autobiography is vastly incomplete at the end of the day. Like, there is so much more of her life that we'll never really know the answers to. Well, maybe, uh, maybe someday, uh, you know, if, if, if let, let's, let's hope she, let's hope she hangs on and is able to complete it herself, uh, because I would dearly love to see that. I, I also want to say, uh, maybe the obvious thing, which is thanks, uh, Beverly Clary, uh, your books were a huge part of my childhood. They were a huge part of my kids' childhood. And, um, we're, I'm like a third generation Cleary reader. I, I can only imagine the thousands and probably millions of kids whose lives were made better by your work. Yeah. Uh, I have to believe that she's listening to this. And, uh, even if she's not, I am sure someone is listening to this who is, who is close to her in some way or, or has even more at stake in her, uh, life than, than we do. And, uh, I just, I hope people realize that throughout the course of this, this show, that even when we had our criticisms, uh, uh, they came from a place of, of intense love because these books, honestly, these books shaped my life and, uh, and and I wouldn't be who I was without them and this whole experience has been nothing but nothing but positive even when we were not recording it it was always in the back of my head (laughs) okay so um you know phil you're a man of many podcasts Mm -hmm. and um and, and so i won't I won't press you on this, but I, I, I do hope that eventually we can get around to doing something else together. I know, yeah. Either, either uh, you, you're you're welcome to guest on Sophomore Lit, whenever you you want to. But but even if if you know somewhere down the line we can think of another uh, another maybe a shorter series to go through or 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 anything else. You know, I was thinking. I was like, you brought up. Uh... You know, you brought up some some children's book series, and you know, maybe it, maybe some specials, maybe just like talking about the the hey, these aren't Beverly Cleary books that came out around the time. Uh, I'm sure someone out there has a hey, this is an Encyclopedia Brown for all the kid detective books that came out uh, in that era. So you know, uh, there's there's ideas. Uh, we'll 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 remain in contact, obviously. And so don't you worry, listeners. Uh, John and I will most likely be back at some point with something. Thing. Uh, certainly guesting on each other's shows at some point. Right. A- a- at us uh, on Twitter 
uh, don't send letters to the podcast. It's over. Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> we're not there anymore. Uh, by the time you hear this, we will have shut up the studio. <laughs> we'll be we'll be headed to Cancun. But if you miss John's voice, make sure you listen to him on Sophomore Lit. There's there's a lot more episodes of that than there are of this. <laughs> and if you miss Phil's voice, who boy? <laughs> <laughs> the only what? person. The only person who doesn't get to hear my voice is my partner because I'm always recording podcasts. <laughs> right. So again, Phil's podcasts are, uh, of course, the venerable deep in bear country, which is what at its five thousandth and twenty second episode. I just put out episode two hundred and seventy nine. Right. So and yes, the uh, the delightful Del Toro. It's Del Toro time. Which has been on hiatus for a, for quite a few months now, as my as my podcasting partner and child Willow has been has been struggling through college just to get finals done, and we are actually about to about to launch back up again, and right. uh, yep. And the final uh, podcast is Pizza Toast. Pizza Toast with Christy Admiral. It's a Babysitters Club adjacent podcast because we don't cover the books; we cover the media around the books. <laughs> In order to differentiate ourselves from literally the 20 other Babysitter's Club podcasts that exist. <laughs> well, uh, we, we really do need to wrap this up, but um, we're, we're, I just want to say we're also closing this in the early days of 2021. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and heaven help us, I, I do hope for better days ahead. Yes, for everyone. Okay, well, bye. On that note, goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Enjoy the Beverly Cleary books.